Welcome back, listeners. Before we get started with our interview, I want to tell you that we have a sponsor for today's podcast, International Medical Industries, IMI. They are an American medical device manufacturer specializing in devices that enhance the safety of medication from the pharmacy to the patient. I'd like to welcome my guest today, Dr. Keith Berg. He is an anesthesiologist who has officially retired after, I believe it was 35 years, you said? Yeah. More or less? More or less, 33. <laughs> 33. Okay. We too, won't too make many. you older. We won't make you any older. He has a perspective that I haven't covered yet in any of my podcasts. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, having this conversation with him so that he can share his experiences. So welcome, Keith. And you, the question that will start us off is, in the years, in the 33 years that you have in the OR, have you had any experiences with coworkers who have been working impaired and were later found to be diverting? Yes, uh, multiple times actually. So, uh, and it's it's one of the challenges of uh, the drug that our people gravitate towards, which is fentanyl. Uh, which is unlike alcohol or benzos or other things where you're stereotypically um, maybe stumbling, slurring your speech, things that we all associate with intoxication. You don't see that with uh, with the opioids. Um, you can have a very high level of function and yet be um, you know impaired with the drug. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, you know, I know when you and I had talked previously, it's not always that easy to spot, which is perplexing to people, I think, when they find out that their coworkers have been diverting. And especially if it's, as you said, fentanyl, typically that it isn't that easy to spot because they're not slurring and stumbling. So, I mean, what, what, does it look like? Is it possible that you're working alongside somebody and can be doing this for quite some time and just not be aware? What finally tips you off that there might be something going on then if it's not that obvious? Sure. Um, absolutely. Yes. It's uh, if somebody is um, diverting fentanyl and uh, from the workplace, odds are they are using in the workplace uh, because once you get to that point, you're basically trying to stave off uh, withdrawal symptoms continuously, basically. Um, so at the, at the one extreme would be uh, you can't detect anything at all unusual in their behavior, all the way to the other extreme where they have a respiratory arrest and drop to the floor and yeah. uh, turn blue and aren't breathing. So um, with those as being kind of the... Uh, the, the two extremes, uh, likely they're going to be somewhere in the middle. Um, and while you see these lists in, in textbooks and whatnot suggesting, well, you look for the addition of long sleeves, you look for crabbiness, you look for frequent bathroom breaks and unexplained absences. Um, all of those things are easily explained away by, uh, you know, potentially a, a dozen other things it might be. Um, 
if somebody, an in-room provider is, is uh, agitated, sweating, dilated pupils, uh, desperately needing to go to the bathroom, you know, maybe they have diarrhea um, or maybe they're in withdrawal and then they come back and they have pinpoint pupils and they're calm and relaxed and in, in, uh, in a blissful state. Well, sure, you'd look at that and say, ah, I'm a little worried about that behavior, but uh, it's it's almost never that obvious. So. Again, I'm kind of painting caricatures more than um, things that that would likely tip you off. What would likely tip you off? Um, you know, changes in behavior. Uh, somebody who is previously very reliable not being reliable. Uh, somebody um, who whose uh, opioid use uh, for cases is accelerating. So whereas they might have used uh, well within the range of their peers for, uh, say, a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, and maybe they were using, on average, uh, 250 micrograms of fentanyl for a case, and now they're using 10 times, they're signing out 10 times that much. Um, yeah, that's, that's certainly a tip-off because uh, people do habituate to the uh, to the use of these drugs, to the euphoric effect that they're after, and also to the uh, just the dose that they need to stave off withdrawal, and their their needs accelerate. Um, what, the most dramatic I ever saw was uh, somebody who first used on a Monday, and by Thursday, we caught them because they couldn't hide how much they needed anymore. Mm. That's that's very much an extreme. It's usually not that fast, but. It can take off that fast, but it inevitably, sorry, inevitably takes off. It accelerates their needs, uh, accelerate, and so usually that's how somebody gets found. Um, that or they're found unconscious or dead in the call room. So, right, and then it it becomes very clear. Okay, so the first couple of things that you mentioned in terms of the changes of behavior, then that's something that those working in the OR we depend on them to notice and to speak up and say something. The other issue of using more, dispensing more, charting more, right? Using more um, on their patients, that isn't necessarily, I'm guessing, things that you would notice in the OR because they're doing their thing, you know, at the head of the bed, but that would require probably somebody from pharmacy or quality or whoever it is that's in charge of your program is the one that would notice that. And then you couple those two together if nobody has said anything about a singular issue. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So for many years when I was uh, trying to improve our controls in the OR, I was relying on, you know, um, word of mouth, basically, somebody wasn't acting right. Uh, and so I I would actually enlist the aid of everybody in the OR. So it's not Absolutely. just an, and not just anesthesia providers. We're the ones that have known about this problem for well over 100 years in our ranks, actually. But uh, the the circulators, the scrub nurses, the, anybody else who might see something unusual uh, to let me know, because uh, it, it's certainly it's a risk to our uh, to our providers who are at risk of overdose and death. It's also more recently become painfully obvious. It's a it's a hazard, a risk to our patients, and uh, not just having a, an impaired provider perhaps taking care of them, but perhaps a provider who's tampering with the drug. Typically, our people uh, divert by dilution. Um, 
or somebody else in the OR who's not an anesthesia provider who's just simply stealing the drugs off the anesthesia tray and substituting it for God knows what, uh, another clear colorless liquid that could just as well be, you know, tap water, toilet water for all anybody knows it's being injected into the patient. So. Right. Yeah. So you're it, good point. It's definitely a team effort. I mean, you have to get everybody involved and talking about the long sleeves and all of those other things. I think maybe some of those things are there, but like you said, it's easily explainable. Um, and so you wouldn't just take one singular thing, but it's that change over time that would be your, your real trigger. Um, and of course, by that time, things have escalated. And then if you're looking at, you know, quantity used, then that would, on the flip side, I know for me, when I've done monitoring <clears throat> at facilities, I mean, the relationship with the chief anesthesiologist is crucial because, I mean, that's who has insight into the OR. I don't know what's going on into the OR, you know, and what has changed. And so yeah. if I have a chief at, that didn't take it seriously, then I didn't have a whole lot of confidence when I took some data to him to say, hey, you know, can you look at this in relation to everything else that's going on versus one who did take it seriously and I knew I could count on them to, you know, be uh, open on honest assessment because for the most part, I mean, I guess except for maybe a long case, there's just one anesthesia provider in the room, right? So you really do depend on all of your nurses and everybody else in the room. Yeah, that's the problem with uh, anesthesia as a um, <clears throat> source for diversion is that typically our providers work alone, um, mm -hmm. basically in privacy. They're behind a drape. Nobody yep. has eyes on them. They can do things with open ampules of drugs that nobody else in the facility can do. You're, you're not seeing that in pharmacy where, you know, uh, or in the ICU or in the nursing station where, uh, people tend to have eyes on each other in, yeah. in the anesthesia world. Anesthesia providers are expensive and there's not going to be redundancy. They're not going to be more eyes on each other. And uh, therein lies the weakness. I kind of failed to answer half your question a moment ago uh, about other other ways to look at it. And, and the answer is absolutely yes. One of the ways to look at it is sort of systemically to keep have somebody keeping an eye out uh, surveillance wise looking at who is, is, is there anybody whose needs are accelerating? Is there somebody who's using unusual amounts? Is there somebody whose patterns are changing? And as you say, if you don't have buy-in from uh, the anesthesia department, if you get the response, uh, we don't have that problem here. Um, everybody has that problem there. Uh, anywhere there, there are opioids, there are people who are seeking to to get their hands on them and, and divert them. And so, yeah, it, you need multiple approaches to it. And one of them is, is robust, active surveillance. Uh, in, in the years that I spent where we were sort of reactive to the problem and, and uh, looking for it when somebody brought me a problem, we we were behind every time and, and we shifted over in the past, uh, you know, 10, 12 years at, when I was working at Mayo to a more active hunting mode. And when you hunt, you find it. So you, you need to be doing both. You need to be uh, prepared to look for it if, if there's a concern, but you also need to be actively looking for uh, evidence of diversion. Right, so tell us about that uh, more active hunting mode. What was it that you did? 
Um, well, we've created a team that uh, that did that uh, in the uh, in the OR suite. So I kind of just to make it easy, break my career down into decades, thirds. So the first <laughs> the the first ten years uh, was was me trying to figure out how we could improve our controls in the OR to protect the anesthesia providers from fentanyl addiction, which was you know truly. Uh, proven to be ravaging our ranks and was killing a lot of anesthesia providers mm -hmm. every year. Uh, at that point, I don't think anybody really recognized the hazards that it presented to patient safety, but uh, be that as it may, um, I, I did not succeed. I thought maybe education was the best way to go. Uh, relatively early in my career, the uh, American Association of Nurse Anesthetists and the American Society of Anesthesiologists uh, combined their efforts and made a, a video called Wearing Masks, uh, which was uh, really an outstanding uh, uh, educational effort to try to uh, bring up to our people the hazards that were presented to them and to educate one another that we had to be looking out for one another. We used that aggressively for, well, still 30 years later, but uh, uh, I pinned all my hopes on that educational effort, um, and that, that just that's not good enough. Uh, telling people don't do drugs, uh, it doesn't work in South Park, and it doesn't work in the real world either. Some, you know, some percentage of people are going to do it. So, um, about ten years into my uh, career, we were casting around looking for ways to improve our uh, opioid controls in the OR. Controlled substances, absolutely. But really, if you look at what gets diverted, it's opioids. And if you look at what opioid gets diverted, it's fentanyl. So my shorthand is fentanyl. But um, And we looked at all the different systems in place. None of them were particularly good. But at that point, the uh, the ADMs were just coming on the market. Uh, Pixis sort of Mark One was uh, available. We decided to go with that. Uh, recognizing that that doesn't really do anything to stop the way our people divert, which is by dilution. Um, we put in a system where we got in, we got a, uh, we got the waste back at the end of the case. So if you, if the practitioner signed out five cc's of fentanyl, uh, an ampule, uh, used three cc's during the case, we would uh, get the two cc's and a, and a syringe rubber stopper into a Ziploc bag with the Pixis receipt. And I use Pixis again because that's what I'm used to. Uh, you know, there are others, Omnicell, et cetera. I'm not playing favorites, that's just my shorthand. Uh, Ziploc dropped into a secure uh, return bin collected at the uh, uh, every day by pharmacy securely. Uh, uh, securely transported down to pharmacy, uh, controlled substances safe under cameras, uh, taken out, reconciled with the anesthesia record, uh, stored in the C2 vault until uh, such time as it could be transported to the incinerator and destroyed. But that gave us access to have um, everybody's waste on hand uh, if we wanted to assay it for uh, to make sure it hadn't been tampered with. Since our people do tend to divert by dilution, they don't take it all. It's not all for me, none for you. It's half for me, half for you. Um, and very hard to detect that with any currently available at the time 
technology, uh, spectrophotometric testing only said present absent, not dilution at the time. Um, and we put that in place in an effort to try to more quickly confirm uh, if there was diversion happening, if we thought it might be happening. And to our uh, lasting astonishment, uh, it, it really dramatically decreased our incidence of diversion uh, in that setting. So we went from basically sending one anesthesia provider a year to uh, treatment for fentanyl addiction to in the subsequent 20 years, two total. So um, that's anecdotal, but it, it was such a dramatic difference that we were pretty impressed that the, just that very, very seemingly minimal bar uh, created a, a barrier in people's mind that said, if I do this, I'll get caught, so I, I won't, I choose not to do this. Um, and, and that uh, kind of was what, so we stumbled into what I think was a pretty good solution. It's, it's, uh, it's not cheap, it's not easy to do, it's logistically tough, it's hard to get all that back, but it's the only real way that you know you have. Um, so if somebody were to come to me and say, I'm worried about so-and-so, I think they might be diverting. Uh, we'd have their waste already and we could continue to collect all their waste. We could send all their waste and see within a day down to toxicology lab for the gas chromatography mass spec or the expensive test, the gold standard test to see, are they, uh, are they tampering? And uh, if not, it's great to know they're not. And uh, it's tough if you don't have a system like that. It's very hard to get your hands on people's waste because they protect it because they know that's the way they could get caught. Right. What about, you know, what I have heard is that anesthesia providers just use it all. I mean, they just chart it and they use it. They don't want to return the waste. Um, it certainly takes more effort to return mm -hmm. waste. And then if they know that you're monitoring their waste, then I'm not going to return it. So that wouldn't take care of, of that situation. I mean, did you just see people start to pivot in, in that direction? Well, I'm just going to administer it all. Yeah, we I'm certain that there's uh, some of that that goes on. Uh, you know, they, uh, so you can look for that uh, retrospectively, say, well, are there providers that never return any waste? That would, that right there would be a red flag. Um, so sure, uh, that's a, that's a fair question. And there are some ways you could work around that. Uh, that's sort of sloppy practice because that's sort of letting the uh, size of the ampule dictate what the dose is for the patient. And that's right. really not how it's supposed to be done. Um, is somebody that's trying to hide their diversion, uh, is that a technique? Yep, that's a technique. And, and we know that too. So, um, and uh, a, an empty syringe is never truly empty. There's always a bit in there. So that's another way to approach okay. that. Okay, so someone who never returns their waste would be a red flag. Could that also be, though, a practice issue? And how they like, how would you go about if, if I came to you and said, okay, I've done this audit, here's this provider, he doesn't, he, she doesn't have any waste um, over the last three months, then how would you, as the chief, go about discerning practice versus? potential diversion, would you just 
query those around them to find out if there'd been any behavioral changes? That would be a start, yeah. Um, you'd, you'd look for other, you know, context. Uh, and, you know, you, the, the worst case you would end up with is what was always before just standard operating procedure, which is you'd have to try to get in there and snag one of their syringes to test it, surreptitiously get a syringe and see if it's diluted. That's hard to do, and it's hard to do without arousing suspicion, and it's, yeah. you know, it's not ideal, but but as, as a worst case, you're right back to where you were anyway. So, um, yeah. yeah, well, and I guess challenges. Yeah, and I guess once you've had the conversation with them and you've like, shame on you, this is bad practice, then they would have to start changing their practice. And if you're taking back your waste, they're gonna have to return waste. So it's like, now what am I looking for? Um, and, you know, and cause they know they, you're gonna test their waste. Yeah, could they beat that? Oh yeah, any system you come up with, um, these are smart, clever, desperate people. Yeah. Any system is beatable. You you will never have a, a perfect mouse yeah. trap, and and we know that. So right. you, you kind of do the best you can, which is what sort of surprised us when we ended up with this system that worked, and it worked in a way that we didn't expect it to. So right. um, is right. it is it defeatable? Yeah, absolutely, it's defeatable. Okay, are there so fentanyl is the number one? Um, are there any other? non-controls that we should be looking at that maybe would help them through the OR with the withdrawals to just kind of hang on if they're not, if they're trying to avoid using it while they're at work? Um, I'd say probably not. Uh, I mean, there are other things people divert uh, that are look innocent uh, and yet suggest diversion uh, on Dancitron, Zofran, you know, anti-nausea drugs um, are are popular because people do uh, suffer nausea from the drug that they're abusing. So there's that. The uh, beta blockers, somebody might mix beta blockers in with the uh, drug that in their syringe that is being administered to the patient uh, to try to disguise the fact that they didn't get opioid in the uh, injection that they were being given so that the, the bradycardia that might accompany analgesia for the patient is not in fact analgesia, it's just beta blockade. There are things people do to try to obscure the fact that they're diverting. Um, and then, yeah, are other things uh, diverted? Yeah, anything can be diverted. Uh, you know, propofol is a drug of abuse. It looks like milk on your cereal, so that it's not clear and colorless like uh, fentanyl is, but uh, so that helps a bit. Um, ketamine, benzodiazepines, yeah, they're all potential uh, drugs of diversion, but um, interestingly, I was working with the uh, Minnesota Department of Health and Minnesota Hospital Association joint effort uh, uh, that involve uh, a lot of others trying to address diversion from healthcare facilities. And so if if a healthcare facility suffers a, a diversion of theft, they have to report it to the DEA. And that's on a, a Form 106, it's called. And so the DEA 
teamed up with the Minnesota Department of Health and just analyzed about six years worth of data on Form 106s and looked at what was being stolen. And by far and away, it was opioids. So about the first eight on the list were opioids and then a benzo and then several more opioids. So okay. it's basically opioids. Yeah, yeah. If you only have a certain amount of time, put your effort where you're going to get your exactly. you know, biggest bang yeah. for your buck. Okay. Yep. I know that I've heard you speak it in various venues and you're um, pretty vocal about your belief regarding not placing an anesthesia provider back in to an anesthesia provider with a substance use disorder, even in recovery, back into the OR. You're you have you know pretty strong convictions that it just won't work they will relapse and it's not a great idea so tell us a little bit about why you feel that way what your experiences are let's talk about that sure um yeah and and just to um clarify it a little bit more it's it's uh if if you're if an anesthesia provider is addicted to drugs they obtained from the workplace okay. so um, we're not talking about alcohol or okay. uh, other other drugs uh, if, if, if they have diverted drugs from the workplace um, okay. that's kind of a bridge too far um, in that they stole it from their patient basically uh, but early in my career so I, I uh, joined the staff at Mayo Clinic in 1988 in 1990 Emil Mink and JAMA published his controversial but at the time uh, state-of-the-art paper on the relapse rate in uh, anesthesia residents that had uh, become addicted to uh, workplace drugs. And in his uh, analysis, which was retrospective uh, data uh, survey of uh, program anesthesia to uh, residency program chairs, um, that he found that about two thirds will relapse. And uh, that is to parenteral, if they are abusing parenteral opioids. And of those two thirds that relapse, about, uh, I think it was 16% will, their initial manifestation of having relapse is they're found dead. Um, and these are, these are young, healthy people. These are, these are typically people in their uh, mid to late 20s who uh, have a, a lot to offer their families, their, the world, and uh, for the sake of allowing them to continue a career in anesthesia when they are still MDs, they can, re they can train in something else. They're not even fully hatched yet as uh, uh, anesthesiologists. Um, they're being subjected to a hazard of death that I just find unacceptable. I don't think uh, I don't think OSHA would allow us to put somebody into a situation where they have a, a very significant risk of being found dead in a call room uh, just because they like what they're doing and they want to keep doing it. Uh, yeah. I, I think they should. Um, be steered down another path. And I always tried to steer our residents who had become addicted to workplace drugs down another path. And the answer was always, well, if there's one person that can beat this, it's me. And uh, great, but uh, 
So, yeah, I took a lot of heat for that over my 30 year career because people don't want to hear that. And they think, well, you're you're a jerk. You're you're a hard ass. You're nasty. You know, everybody deserves a second chance. Well, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not a bad guy. I, I'd like to see them survive. I don't I don't think it's a good choice to subject somebody to that risk of death when they can go on and have a long and happy career or something else. That's and okay. can I prove that they would not become a radiologist and relapse to fentanyl? No, I can't. I can't. But availability is certainly a, a factor. So Okay. So would it be fair then to say that it is not that you don't believe that it is possible that they could go back into the OR and not relapse, but the statistics are so high that you just don't believe it is worth the risk and you'd rather have them use their skill sets in another arena and not take that risk because the consequence of failure could be death and it's Absolutely. just not worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I know it's possible. I have friends who have have succeeded in uh, returning to the practice of anesthesia um, safely to this point. You know, they haven't relapsed yet. Um, I think there's always at a higher risk of relapse uh, uh, and, and consequently death but so yeah certainly it's possible and um i would often be in a room full of people that had done it and they'd say well you know i did it and i'd say yeah but the people who did it didn't succeed relapsed and died are not here to give me to share their voice with us either yeah. so um okay. do they exist yeah we know they exist uh, or existed in past tense because they're dead now because they tried and failed Right. Okay. That makes sense. All right. So um, in addition to looking at waste or having at least having waste available to look at and getting everybody in the OR to understand what diversion is and to speak up if they see something that's concerning, do you have any other recommendations or words of wisdom for those out there that are trying to do a better job in the, it's hard looking in the OR. It is really, really hard. Um, not only because those of us monitoring don't have a foothold into the OR, but you know, anesthesia, they got their little wall of, of uh, peer review and they're untouchable in a lot of places because you know, the hospital administration just kind of does what anesthesia tells them to do too many times. So it's a yeah. really hard place. So do you have any other words of wisdom that may be helpful? So that, that brings me to the third third of my career, which um, was when uh, we had, uh, Mayo had a, a kind of a high profile front of the newspaper uh, diversion in a outlying, one of our outlying hospitals. And it became, and it was outside of the operating room, and it became clear that we had a, a problem that needed addressing, which was diversion from outside of the operating room as well. Um, Mayo asked me to be on a task force to address that, and uh, to my horror, 
I found that I knew more about it than anybody else did because of my experiences inside the OR, and I didn't feel like I knew nearly enough. But um, we did create a, a, a drug diversion prevention committee and a, and a response team, and we tried to create a way to take what we had in the OR out of the OR and use it. And um, uh, that that turned out to be successful. We we got more aggressive about hunting outside of the OR as we were hunting inside of the OR. And, and when you look, you find it and whatnot. But that's not really the question you asked. Um, uh, yeah, it's tough because so the third third of my career, I, I worked with people that do what you're doing right now. And that was my job. Um, and I got to see the challenges through their eyes. And yeah, it's tough to break into the OR, especially if the um, if the anesthesia department management doesn't understand that they have mm -hmm. a problem in the first place. And yeah. you get that. You get people that say, well, we don't have that problem here, which is absolutely absurd because, yeah, we, we do. We always have and we always will. Uh, we have uh, rocket gallons of rocket fuel passing through our hands every day. So it's no surprise that that's where uh, people who are determined to uh, get their hands on rocket fuel go to get rocket fuel. Uh, they go to the OR. Um, so uh, how best to work uh, if you are coming at it from outside of the OR, you really need um, you need an ally in yeah. the anesthesia department uh and you know in a perfect world it would be the chair uh but in in my world it was me uh because you know i i did the reverse of what you're doing which was uh i broke out of the or into the the broader sphere and you're trying to break out of the broader sphere and into the or to to make an impact and and uh, what you need is is you need anesthesia providers that understand it's a problem many do um, many anesthesia providers do because we, we've been trained since we were relatively children in, in anesthesia, that this is a problem within the ranks of anesthesia. Um, and it's an insular area. People don't like being told what to do. For some reason, I've always sensed, um, some acrimony between anesthesia and pharmacy. Uh, I think it goes back into the mists of time, maybe when anesthesia departments used to charge for the drugs that they provided and, and sort of jealously guarded that revenue stream and pharmacy was saying, yeah, but we're the drug people, we should be controlling the flow of drugs through our facility, which I'd say, yeah, that's obvious. But uh, so I think there's some of that that goes on. I, I've never really quite understood why there's sort of uh, a contentious relationship between um, yeah. pharmacy and anesthesia. But um, you need to break that down. You need to have a cooperative effort. Everybody needs to understand, uh, first and foremost, this is a patient safety issue. We mm -hmm. are all trying to protect our patients from uh, tainted drugs, tampered drugs, wrong, anything, whatever. Uh, and then we're trying to provide uh, safety for our, our providers, our personnel, trying to, so it, it shouldn't be an us against them environment. It's yeah. a very, very challenging environment because the anesthesia provider, 
I'd say is always going to be alone behind the drapes with an open ampule. And um, so one other thing that has come along in the last couple of years, which I applaud, and I have to say, uh, 10 years ago, I would have said, this is, this is a scam. This is pharmaceutical companies trying to maximize their profits by selling you a CC of fentanyl, selling you a you know, 50 microgram increment aliquot of mm -hmm. fentanyl rather than a 5cc aliquot of fentanyl. Well, you know, in retrospect, I'd have been wrong. That's a good idea because, you know, if you can sign out of your ADM the smallest amount that you can that you're likely to use, and if that's 50 micrograms or 100 micrograms or 250 micrograms, take out the least you're likely to use because it's the waste stream that's really, really vulnerable to attack. And if there is no waste stream, then there's nothing to attack. So uh, I know for Zinnius Cabby, uh, um, who I don't work for, they don't pay me. Um, uh, I have spoken on their behalf before because, uh, yeah, I became convinced that, that their efforts to minimize the uh, amount that gets signed out was, in retrospect, a really good idea. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, are there things that can be done? Yeah. Are they going to work? Yeah. Not all of them. Not all the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right that uh, bringing it down to the smallest dose. A waste. I mean, you know, that's a lot of what we've talked about today is the whole waste. It's It's a very, very, very easy way to divert i mean it, it it's is. just it's going in the trash it's not hurting yep. the patient it's going in the trash it's not affecting the revenue cycle i mean it's literally going in the well the appropriate receptacle not the trash but um right. and so to to make it the smallest and so that is a good way and i think you're spot on the relationship between pharmacy and anesthesia or whoever it is that's monitoring i um you might be right on the charging. I kind of feel like it's a bit of pharmacy is so heavily regulated by so mm -hmm. many different agencies and directors of pharmacy tend to be very uh, guarded because their license is on the line for so many different things that they yep. theoretically have direct control over, but really don't. Um, because there's so much going on. And so I think that that's maybe part of the clash is that pharmacy comes in hot and heavy with regulatory and this is drugs and no, you can't do that. And anesthesia just by nature of who they are, they don't want to be told what to do. And the, you know, pharmacy doesn't want to be told what to do when it comes to meds. And so I think there's a little bit of a clash there. I worked at an institution where when I was put in charge of the controlled substances, I began to develop that relationship with anesthesia, <clears throat> which had been horrible up until that point. And we were able to turn that around. I take more of a, um, you know, yeah, there's regulations, but there's also real life. We need to work together to find that balance. But, you know, the anesthesia chief said, they can tell us anything they want, but it doesn't mean we're going to do it. They can't make us. And that was kind of the attitude, right? And so I think that that is the key right there is that relationship between whoever is doing that monitoring and anesthesia, because you're right, this is about the patient and this is about the anesthesia providers themselves and anyone else in that room, frankly, that, um, you know, is not being monitored. And so we all need to work together sure, yeah. and have those eyes and ears.
I think we have lost some connection here. Um, hopefully Keith will come back, but we'll wrap that up. And um, hopefully you all learn something. Oh, there you are. Sorry, sorry, Terry, I lost you there for a moment. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I have uh, friends in the DEA and the FDA who are law enforcement people. Uh, who do they sit down the table at the table across from the pharmacy director and the mm -hmm. pharmacy people? I, I, you know, they're humorless about some of this stuff and they ought to be. This is not yep. so for for a farm for a anesthesia chair to say, you know, screw you. This is this is our turf. No, no, it's not. It's yeah. not. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe they should be uh, in the room with the pharmacy director and those guys with the big letters on the back of their jacket, because that focuses yeah. the mind wonderfully about really who who gives permission to have those drugs inside your walls in the first place, because they can take yeah. it away. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. We'll recommend that. Invite anesthesia to the table when those people come in and let them yeah. see it. But yeah, it's no joke. Yeah. It's no joke. Yeah. 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 No, it isn't. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Keith. I think this was some great information. Um, you know, I, I do want to say one more thing to the listeners out there. When you and I talked, you gave me another idea, and that is to look at the amount of dispenses over, I think you said just a two-week time period, because it happens pretty fast when you are abusing the fentanyl. And so for those of you out there, even though you may not have specific access to types of procedures or you know specific things within the OR just look at the provider over two week four week time span and see if their usage went up significantly and then of course I guess you should double check and make sure they're not taking care of you know gone from eye cases to heart cases or something which would explain that um, but that is another place to look at just the data in general and see if you see a big change there. Right. And you need an ally inside the anesthesia department that can provide context for exactly yes. those kinds of things, because, you know, it, they might look at it and say, sure, that's to be expected. Or they might say, right. no, 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 no. We got a, We got a rat here. Nothing else has changed. Yep. That's right. Okay. All right. We'll wrap that up then. Thank you very much, Keith. And um, you have a great rest of your day. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Terry. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for listening today. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button. And you can learn more about our sponsor, IMI, at imiweb.com, where you can see their complete line of innovative, tamper-evident products, including their industry-leading prep lock line of tamper-evident caps, which are an active deterrent to diversion.